the simplest commercial baking resource. Brought to you by Bakerpedia and hosted by Lynn Carson with a PhD in grain sciences. Sharing knowledge and helping you grow connections. Listening to the Baked in Science podcast. Welcome to Baked in Science. I am your host, Dr. Lin from Bakerpedia, the world's largest online depository of technical baking information. Today, I will be interviewing Dr. Jane Bach, the technical director of the Wheat Marketing Center here in Portland. We will be discussing the important aspects of flour. As you may know, Baked in Science comes free to you because of our sponsors. We would like to thank Grain Millers for sponsoring this podcast episode. For over 30 years, Grain Millers has been the baking industry leader for organic, non-GMO, and gluten-free ingredients in all kinds of baked goods. Their functional oat flour line can provide solutions to many formulation challenges. Whether you are seeking flavor, nutrition, health benefits, synergistic functionality, texture, or other attributes that a functional flower can offer. To learn more, please contact them at 800-443-8972 or visit their website at grainmillers.com. Well, are you ready for a fascinating conversation on flower? Here's Dr. Jane Bach. In this podcast, we will be discussing the components of flour, their functionality, and analytical methods. Welcome, Dr. Jane. It's good to be back again. Thanks, Lynn. Yeah, flour is uh, mainly composed of proteins, carbohydrates, and a little bit of lipids. Let's talk about the most important aspect of flour. Jane, what do you think is the most important part of flour? That's a good question, Lynn. Probably the most important aspect of flour that we talk about the most would be the protein. So in general, depending on the flour that you have, the protein content is gonna range from about six or 7% all the way up to as high as 18% in some instances. We generally assume as a rule of thumb that roughly 80% of the protein is the functional gluten proteins that we care the most about. This is the fraction that's responsible for dough properties. And so the main thing here to understand is that protein quantity doesn't necessarily equate with protein quality. They're two different things. So just because you have 10% protein doesn't necessarily mean that you have quality 10% protein. So besides the protein, what is the next important component of flour? That would probably be the starch. Starch comprises about 70% of the total flour. 70% of total flour components are starch. It's absolutely critical because it usually sets the final structure in the baked product. One of the things we like to put into our specs is how much damaged starch is there from the milling process because it can affect everything from water absorption to the speed of your fermentation. So it's something that you want to keep track of. How about minor components like lipids? Lipids are a small fraction of flour, but they are really important. They 
play a role in flour aging and they influence gluten properties by their interactions with gluten and it's it, they influence the way that gluten really comes together and forms in dough. In addition to the lipids, there are also the pentazans, or as they're more commonly referred to now, the arabinoxylans, and these are the soluble fibers present in your flour. They will influence your water absorption. They'll also influence your gluten, but depending on which type of arabinoxylans are present, that influence will be helpful or harmful to gluten properties. What analytical methods can we use to characterize these components? And is it really necessary for bakers to understand this? Yeah, it's absolutely critical that bakers understand this because this is essentially the language that you're going to use to communicate with your supplier or your miller. Mm -hmm. It's through these specifications, so the values that you want to see from these methods that will direct your miller or your supplier to the right flour for your product. Where do you start? Probably start with the protein content, and the first thing you need to do is quantify the total amount of protein there. So you can use a technique called near-infrared or NIR spectroscopy to quantify the protein, or you can use a more traditional combustion method. But remember that you're only measuring how much protein is there. It's not really telling you how that protein will perform in the dough itself. So this is how much protein is in the flour, right? Right, just the amount of protein in the flour. Okay, so what analytical methods can tell us how well it performs? There are a lot of different tests depending on what it is you want to look at. So if we want to look at dough mixing properties, for example, we can use methods or instruments including the farinograph, the mixolab, and the dough lab. These will tell you things like how long it will take, how much mixing time it will take to optimally develop your dough as well as how stable your dough is to overmixing. You can also use tests like the extensograph the alveograph or the Kiefer dough rig to look at the balance of extensible to elastic properties in your dough. This will tell you how your dough relaxes and how it will hold, retain gas and expand during fermentation, for example. There's also other tests out there on the market that are designed to be more rapid than the tests I've listed already. One of those would be the GlutoPeak. It's a test that you run in five minutes, and really it just measures how quickly and how strongly your gluten proteins come together. And so that gives you an indication of gluten strength and how it might process on your line. I have a question about that test. Yeah. Is that the one that looks like a plunger and it just pretty much compress? <laughs> No, that's, that's a different test. Oh. That's the glutomatic test. Oh, it's not, the, it's not the same? No, they're not the same thing. Oh, darn it, but does it measure the same thing? No, um, so the, the glutopeak that I just talked about is going to measure how your gluten aggregates, so how quickly the gluten is attract oh, and comes it. together, and then how strong it is once, once it forms its, its aggregate. Oh. The glutomatic is actually telling you how much gluten is physically present in your protein. So like I mentioned earlier, we assume that 80% of the protein is gluten right. protein. Functional, yeah. Right, it's exactly. Not, yeah. So the glutamatic, you create this dough ball and then you basically wash out all the solubles. So all the starch, all the soluble proteins, and mm -hmm. you're left with just the gluten. Mm -hmm. And so then you can weigh the wet gluten, you can weigh the dry gluten, you can calculate a gluten oh. index. It's more quantifying the gluten oh, that's okay. present. All yeah. right. I was so excited about it because I saw it working <laughs> the other day. 
And, you know, one of my friends was working at one of the largest grocery chain stores and they had an issue with co-manufactured bread and they were trying to figure out how to quantify the protein in there because everything on the market right now is uh, qualifying the protein, the protein quality. Right. But they really wanted something that measured how to quantify the wheat gluten in vital wheat gluten. So... Would that be the glutamatic or would that be the glutopic test? Yeah, if they're trying to quantify the gluten that's actually there, that would be the glutamatic. Ah, got it. So right. many similar names. I know. It's kind of confusing. Protein quality can be measured by all the mentioned equipment that we just talked about. So how about the next major component, starch? So there are a lot of different aspects of starch that we measure and we first start measuring starch in the wheat kernel itself so one of the first things we do when we receive a lot of of grain and this is especially common on the milling side you grind it up and you perform what's known as a falling number test and so this is essentially testing to see if there's been any pre-harvest sprouting that's taken place that releases amylase into the wheat kernel. And if that amylase is there, it starts breaking down the starch. And so in general, when we run the falling number test, we're looking for a falling number of 300 seconds or higher, just to make sure that the grain is sound and the starch is sound. Got it. What then should be a typical falling number that bakers can work with? So like I mentioned, in the wheat itself, we look for a falling number of about 300. This gives us a little bit of a cushion, you know, in case there's any variability within the lot of wheat itself and any error, you know, due to the test method. Because there's 300 always... plus minus 5, 10, 15, 20. Usually with the falling number, um, depending on how well trained the lab is and if they're doing altitude corrections appropriately, you're probably looking at something from plus or minus 15 to maybe plus or minus 30 if it's a really poorly trained laboratory. Oh, okay. A, a margin of error between 15 to 30. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And it depends. Okay. Um, and if they were to add amylase at the mill, what kind of number should we, we be looking at? Yeah, so like I said, 300 seconds in the wheat itself, you can actually bake with falling numbers that go down to about 250 seconds. So 250 seconds will produce very acceptable breads, cakes, and cookies. As you start to get lower than 250, that's where we start to see a lot of product defects pop up. So you'll start to see large holes showing up in the crumb of your bread. You might even see some keyholing taking place. So you wouldn't re recommend any baker to use flour that's 225 or below? No, you're, you're starting to get into some dangerous territory because uh, starch sets the structure. And so if your starch isn't sound, then you're, you're going to have some issues with product collapse. Got it. So that's like the bottom flour. It's like for cookies. <laughs> <laughs> still, yeah. still possible for human consumption, but for cookies, right? Come on, we can't use sprouted, sprouted yeah. flour yeah. for cookies. Well, theoretically, you could. There's nothing wrong with the product structure in that case. But the problem is, because you've broken down so much starch, you've released more sugars, and that starts to create more browning. So you'll start to see excessive browning in your cookies, which is an appearance oh, issue. Yeah. Is, would it have a spread issue, too? Or no? Not necessarily. Okay. Uh, spread so is more controlled browning. by the sucrose. Right. Yeah. Okay. What about the starch damage that most flour millers talk about? 
Yeah, so starch damage is another thing that we check. Starch is naturally damaged during the milling process. It's just part of that breaking down of a wheat kernel into particles the size of flour. Starch damage will affect water absorption and the the speed of fermentation. In general, starch damage tends to be higher for hard wheats and lower for soft wheats. Got it. How often do you think starch damage happens, and is this step necessary to measure the starch damage? You do want to keep an eye on the starch damage because it will influence dough properties, and in some instances it'll influence the final product quality as well. So, like I just said, hard wheat naturally tends to generate higher levels of starch damage than soft wheat, simply because the hard wheat kernel is, as implied by the name, harder than soft wheat. So it takes more energy to grind it. You have to be use a little bit more force. And the way that the kernel breaks down, it tends to break through the starch granules rather than around. So generally in a hard wheat, you're probably going to see around 8% starch damage. In a soft wheat, because the kernel texture is softer, it takes less energy to grind. And the way the kernel breaks down, it breaks around the starch granules, so you're left with with more intact starch. So you're typically not going to see very high starch damage levels to the level that you would for hard wheat in your soft wheat flours. Got it. How about minor components like lipids and the very hard to pronounce arabinozylans? And if listeners, you are laughing at me, (laughs) I'm going to make you pronounce this in class 10 times till you get it. So don't laugh at me. How do you say that word? Arabinozylans. There you got it. (laughs) How about that? So in the case of lipids, we don't test directly for lipids, mainly because they're such a minor fraction. We can get an indirect assessment on lipids by looking at the protein quality. Lipids will influence how gluten proteins interact with one another, so you indirectly get a sense for the quality of the the lipid-gluten interactions by looking at some of that protein quality information. Got it. In terms of arabinozylans, there again, we don't tend to measure those directly per se, but there is a test called the solvent retention capacity test. And in one part of that test, we put the flour into a concentrated sucrose solution. And what that does is it causes the arabinozylans to swell and take up and bind that sucrose solution. So that's a way of starting to quantify the impact of arabinozylans on flour quality and what the impact might be on end product quality then. Great. There are always reports of the amount of ash and moisture on our flour specs. Let's talk about ash first. Why is that important? So ash is important because it serves as an indicator of brand contamination. And we typically don't want to see excessive brand contamination because it typically leads to some quality defects in products. And it can be more detrimental for some products than others. So during grinding, just like damaged starch, because hard wheat requires more energy to grind and break down, you tend to see a little bit higher ash content because you'll see more bran shattering and smaller bran particles just kind of naturally making their way into the flour compared to a soft wheat flour. One of the things to keep in mind, if you listened to our second podcast on milling and the different flour grades, you can generally get away with a little bit 
more brand contamination and an associated higher ash content in bread flours. But in products like cakes, you really don't want to see a lot of brand contamination because that is really harmful to the structure of cakes. So it, certainly in cakes, that's why we take the patent flour fraction because it comes from the centermost portion of the kernel and it'll have less of that brand contamination. Got it. So how high? Like 0.5%? Typically in cake flours, you want to stay about 0.4% or lower. Okay, so for artisan bread, 0.5 is fine. Yeah, 0.5 okay. would be fine for artisan bread. How can the bakers then measure ash? There are a couple ways to measure it. Some companies choose to use NIR spectroscopy again. I wouldn't recommend it as much because that is a very indirect way of measuring it. You can also measure it, though, by combustion, so if you put it into an ash oven and incinerate the flour sample, the residue that's left over is actual ash. And so if you weigh the amount of residue left over and divide it by the weight you started with, that's your ash content. And any third-party lab should be able to do this for a baker. How about moisture? How can bakers best measure moisture? So moisture content is much easier to measure than the other components that we've been discussing, like protein, starch, and ash. Essentially, there are a couple different ways you can measure it. There are a lot of moisture meters on the market that can do it in a matter of minutes. Typically, they rapidly heat the sample, and then they just continuously record the weight. And when that weight finally stabilizes, the weight that was lost during the drying process is basically your moisture content. The other way to do it is to use NIR spectroscopy again. This is a little bit more of a direct measurement this time with water content, so NIR is also another rapid means of, of measuring the moisture content in flour. What does it mean for the baker if the moisture of a flour is too high or too low? So first of all, we have to keep in mind that one of the primary implications if your flour is too high in moisture is that you can have my microbial growth taking place. And as we saw with the gold medal flour recall, flour is, it's not exempt from microbial growth and it's not exempt from microbial growth that can contribute to foodborne illnesses. So food safety is first and foremost. And so you always wanna see a flour with a moisture content 14.5% or lower. You, you never want to see it above 14.5%. The second thing to keep in mind with flour moisture is that if your flour moisture is a little bit higher than expected, you probably need to cut back on the water that you're going to add at the mixer. If it's too low, you're probably going to have to add more water at the mixer than you originally anticipated. So as moisture content goes up, less water, moisture content in the flour goes down, more water. Great. Is there then a relationship between ash and moisture? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things to pay attention to in your specs is the reporting moisture basis and also keep an eye on the actual moisture content as well. So when you're talking about compositional analyses, if one component goes up, the other components naturally have to go down to maintain 100%. So as moisture content goes up, your ash content will drop. It's the same for protein as well. So if your moisture content goes up, your protein content goes down, and vice versa. But not drastically, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your knowledge on wheat flour. Now, how about other kinds of flour? You are a cereal scientist. How about other grain flours like sorghum, corn, barley? 
rice. Uh, how can we assess quality for these kinds of flour? So those are interesting to look at, and it's kind of fun sometimes because the quality testing isn't as universally established for these flours as it is for wheat flour. We've been doing wheat flour for over 100 years now because bread has been such a, a staple product in the Western diet. Mm-hmm. In these non-wheat flours, we will look at things like particle size because that will influence water absorption and how quickly water is taken up during mixing and and things like mixing properties, we'll test for protein content with a combustion method or NIR spectroscopy. And in most instances, starch can really be tested using a lot of the same instrumentation as for wheat flour. Beyond that, each company tends to have its own metrics for assessing their incoming materials, you know, their incoming flours of this nature. And sometimes it's not really as much a quality analysis as a nutritional analysis that you need for this flour. So, for example, if you're working with oats, it might be quantifying beta-glucans to make sure that you're in compliance with front-of-packaged claims and, and labeling. Or maybe if you're working with a sorghum product, it's, it's testing for protein digestibility, there again for nutritional compliance. Very good. Well, thank you, Jane, for sharing your knowledge on wheat flour and the different analytical methods. This podcast was made possible by our sponsor, Grain Millers. Could your product benefit from added shelf life, reduced breakage, or increased fiber? Grain Millers' natural oat fiber can help without that chalky feeling. And since it is unrefined, intrinsic, and intact, it can help maintain clean labels too. To speak with a technical expert or request a sample, call 800-443-8972 or visit their website at grainmillers.com. Before I go, please like, comment, and subscribe to Baked in Science. Till the next episode, bakers, watch that flower!